Well, I've been wanting to preach a sermon on contentment for a good long while, and uh, a number of different ideas kind of came together uh, over the course of time, along with many passages. So typically we take a book, we start at the beginning, then we go through all the verses until we finish. And uh, today is different. This is a, a topical sermon. You would not even believe how many verses I had to eliminate uh, from this sermon because there just isn't time. But the Scripture speaks so clearly when it comes to contentment and the Christian life. And uh, so what I did is I boiled it down to six. I really wanted to get it down to five because then you can just stop and look at your five fingers. But here's what we do, okay? We need two thumbs <laughs> for this one. Six questions for the discontented Christian. So when you find yourself, and you will, and I have, right? We, we are all here actually more than we realize, we are, we are here often. This is, uh, this is kind of autopilot without thought. This is where we go. So stop yourself, catch yourself, hold up your hand, and ask yourself these six questions. Remind yourself, really, of these six truths. Okay, that's what I'm aiming for in this. Philippians 4 is uh, one of the passages that we're going to draw from. I want to begin, though, by starting here with uh, a very high bar that Paul gives us. <laughs> I remember preaching through the book of Philippians here in 2008, and when we came to this verse, I was just struck with how incredibly difficult it is to obey the Lord in this command. It's a command, right? It's a command for you, Christian, to obey. Do all things, all things, without grumbling or questioning. The word there uh, can also mean uh, uh, complaining or... Um, putting up a, 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 a problem, like, I, I don't like this, I'm, I'm not okay with this. Uh, so we're to do all things without grumbling or complaining uh, in a sense that we, as we do that, we stand out, we shine like lights in a crooked and perverse generation. A dark world will stop and say, what is different about you? You, you should be complaining right now. Why are you not? You see that it creates opportunities to shine. The word grumbling here, some of you who are here in 2008 might remember this. Gongizmos. Okay, let's all say this on three. One, two, three. Gongizmos. Gongizmos. Okay, so this is a fun project, okay? In your family units, among your friends, the Bible studies, when you're chatting after church, and someone that you love begins to complain. Even your pastor if, the, if you hear your pastor begin to kind of moan and groan, moan, murmur, 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 right? Here's what you say. Hey, hey, hey. No gongizmos. All right? That's, it'll catch. Uh, like, it'll, it's amazing how often this has come up over the years. Someone uh, from way back then the other day was like, hey, no gongizmos, right? It's, it's helpful. It's, help, it's loving, right? No grumbling, the grumbling of the Israelites as they wandered was one of the defining deficiencies of their day. And the echo of that example, that bad example, meets us with a calling. Don't do what they did as you follow the Lord, as you walk with Him through life. No gongizmos. No gongizmos. Now that's easier to say than it is to live. Okay? 
Discontentment, Jerry Bridges writes in his spectacular book. If you have not read this book, I highly recommend it to you. It's called Respectable Sins. He, he will just tear your world apart, basically, in, in all the wonderful ways that you need. Discontentment is one of the sins that he identifies, and he says it most often arises from ongoing and unchanging circumstances that we can do nothing about. It is that that discontentment, when you feel powerless and you feel frustrated and you begin to stir in your heart, and then what happens is grumbling, murmuring. You express it oftentimes in, an, in another sinful way. Discontentment is a sinful heart inclination. When God gets in the way of our plans, when things don't go the way we think they should have gone, oh, how easy it is for us to fall into this. And let's just identify this. Bitterness is at the door, right? A discontented heart moves into a grumbling mouth and opens the door for the enemy to launch in like a, like a lion, to pounce on your heart with bitterness. And bitterness gives birth to all kinds of sins. Murder, strife, contentions. They all flow. So we are those who are called to be aware, on the look, and hunting for these kinds of things in our lives. And frankly, the more that you have this on your radar, the more you'll find it, as I experienced this past week. It is good that we fight against discontentment. Physical appearance. Lord, I just, I'm just not happy with how I look. I, I wish you would have designed me differently. This can linger. This can be subtle. This can be a powerful, shaping discontentment that can lead to all kinds of dysfunction in your life. I wish I had so-and-so's abilities. I wish I could jump higher, run farther, uh, do this or do that. I wish, I wish I was like that person. Discontentment. Health. I wish I was healthy like this person. You know, they're older than me and they can run a marathon. I wish I didn't have the things that I do have. The struggles, the challenges, the thorns in the flesh. Discontentment. I wish I wasn't single anymore. I wish I, I, wish I was married. Lord, what's the deal? That's a real place. That's a real struggle, right? It can be a challenge. I wish I was single. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I've ever felt that. Not once married, I, I, I haven't felt that. But, but there are times where in marriage it's hard. And discontentment creeps in. And leads to a litany of sins. Keeping the vow can be a challenge. Or divorced, Right? Oh, the pain and the wreckage and the heartache and how easy discontentment can sneak in and then bitterness and then anger and then all kinds of expressions. I just wish we had children. I just wish we had grandchildren. I wish I had a different job. I'm not happy with my work. I'm not satisfied. This is boring. This is I'm, I'm overqualified for this. Or I can't believe they fired me. How dare they? Right? 
On down the line. Oh, this is real. This is Monday morning, my friends. How's your heart as you go into work? I wish I didn't have to sit by so-and-so at work. He is a chisel in your hand, O Lord. How long will you chisel with this man or lady, whoever it is, right? The workplace dynamics can be real. Financial standing. These finances are killing us. I just wish we had more money. Lord, how come we don't have more money? What? I'm just frustrated. Or this house is falling apart, or this car won't start. Or I mean, just the, grumbling is right there. It's just right there. Bad decisions of the past, disappointments. If I could just go back and change that moment, think of all the things that I would have avoided. Why did I do that? And you just get stuck living in condemnation, but it doesn't want to stay there. It wants to move into other sins. Discontentment leads the way. Now, I'm going to go easy on us here, but we've all been here, huh? Weather forecast. <laughs> Weather, what? what? Where's the sun? It never shows itself around here. And then, like, why is it so dry? Why won't it rain? And then, I mean, we are hilarious. This, I think the Lord just programs our weather just to show us our weakness and propensity to be discontent. It's too hot. Oh, it's so cold. It's flooding. Oh, but it's real, isn't it? See, it's... God does this for our benefit sometimes. It reveals that we are not yet holy. Political leaders, I'm not going to need to say much more about that, but there are certain seasons that we experience where discontentment can just ooze through our veins. Just, oh, and it leads to other sins. We've got to be reminded of these six questions when we struggle there. Now, there is a such thing as a holy discontentment. I don't mean to, uh, to categorize all discontentment as sin and, and, and wrong. There is a holy discontentment that says, Lord, I am not yet who I long to be in my holiness, in my obedience. Make me holy. Oh, Lord, I'm not satisfied with my walk with you yet. I want to grow. That's good. That's a work of the Spirit. That is His conviction and His stirring in your heart to love what is obedient and love what is holy and bright and, and light and pure. That's good. This, these categories, though, of, of discontentment, these, these are real as well. And we've got to really guard against them as we walk with the Lord. So let me begin here. This is where we're going to finish. What's amazing is how simple this seems. Um, it's truly glorious. True contentment is found in Christ alone. And it's just amazing how rich that statement is when you really think about it. All of the connection points of what Christ brings to us in this life. Today, not just then, today. True contentment is found in Christ alone. Paul says it this way, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Now that, 
word should help us when we struggle, right? It doesn't mean it's easy. It means that it takes work. And, and he would even refer to it as a, it's a secret, as it were. This isn't easy, but there is an answer. There's a key that unlocks the door of contentment. I've learned the secret of facing plenty, which he sees, interesting, look at his language there. He sees as dangerous, potentially dangerous, and hunger, which we would agree. That, that's hard. That's, that's challenging. Abundance and need. Here's the secret. Here's the key that unlocks the door. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who is that? Christ. Christ, the King, the Savior. So these six questions are a build out of that. I'm talking about those who have embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is six questions for the discontented Christian. If you're here and you're not yet a believer, then allow this to call to you all the rich resource that Christ will bring to your life when you turn from your sin and embrace Him as Lord and Savior. Question number one, who am I? So, you feel the discontentment coming, you stop, you hold up your hand and one thumb, and you start and you say, okay, who am I? Christian, remember, answer this question, who am I? What are we targeting here? Identity. Identity in Christ. What's true of me? Right now, as I am wrestling with this discontentment, what is true? What do I need to remind myself about? Listen to some of these realities that God has accomplished through Jesus Christ in your life. You have died, Christian, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christian, you walk in marvelous light today. No matter the circumstance, he has you. He's chosen you. He's made you a, a, a possession of his a trophy of His grace. You have a certain future. You, you have a Savior who hides you, as it were, in Him. In your book, were written, David says, every one of them, the days that were formed, that is ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. Which means that whatever situation I face today has been ordained by God. He penned it. He is the author of my story. I live it. He wrote the story. He is perfect and wise and at work. And then you run to Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, which means there is nothing that I can face in this life that has not passed through his grid of sovereign best for me in this moment. He's working. He has a plan. He's all wise. I might not understand it and I might not see it. And as we saw in Habakkuk, it's good to run to him when we're in that place. It's good, right? But there is a place of peace to be found even in the midst of the flames. I'm his. God created me. I am the work of God. He, he made me, right? 
To complain about who you are is to complain about His handiwork. To, to, to forget what God has done is to forget that He has changed you. You are not who you were. You're a new creation. You've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. You are His child forever. Nothing, nothing can separate you from His love. Romans 8. He loves me with an unfailing love, and in sovereign wisdom, He has ordained my days. So, one of the most powerful victories over a discontented heart is simply remembering who you are. I am a trophy of God's grace. I am held by God. He loves me. He is for me. He is in this. Nothing can endanger me from His love. Not death, not suffering, not trials, not pain, not annoyances, not a flat tire, not a rainy day. Nothing. I am His. So question number one is, who am I? Question number two, where is my heart? Okay, so we're working our way across the first hand here. Who am I? Where is my heart? This is so important for us to stop and assess all the time, throughout the day, at the end of the day, and especially when someone comes up and says, no gongizmos. No gongizmos, brother. Hang in there. You can do this. Where's my heart? Well, oftentimes it's set on the wrong thing. Treasure Christ, brother, sister. Treasure Christ. Who am I? Identity in Christ. Number two, where's my heart? Treasure Christ. Remember this Christian. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, what did he do? He goes and sells all his possessions and he buys that field. What is Jesus telling us about this kingdom parable? He's saying that when you have Christ, he is enough. You have everything. Good word. You have everything you need in Christ. No possession is ever going to give you life like Christ. And oh, how quick our hearts forget these things. How often we return to the mud to roll around and think that there is life here in the mud pit and that somehow satisfaction for our soul is to be found in possessions or in money or in stuff or in fear of people or in pleasing, whatever it might be, that job advancement, that faster car, that whatever, I mean, fill in that idolatry that wants to take your heart and run it into the mud. Don't forget what you have in Christ. You have the treasure that is so much more valuable that you could sell everything you own and you would miss nothing if you have Christ. Keep or guard your heart with all, with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's wisdom, friends. That's wisdom. It means that it's not just a one-time event. This is a daily activity. Lord, where's my heart? Where's my heart? How am I doing? What, what I, I, idolatry would seek to steer me away from you. If riches increase, set not your heart on them, Christian. 
Once God has spoken, twice I have learned this, that power belongs to God. You want a treasure? You have it. It's God. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's a command. What a beautiful, simple, straightforward command for us to embrace in a culture that doesn't even conceive of the reality of contentment. What do you mean contentment? That's a cop-out. You're quitting. Salespeople hate this. Basically, advertisers spend their days trying to prove to you all the things that you don't have and that you really want. It's what a good commercial does. Why would we keep our life free from the love of money? How could we be content with what we have? Well, he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You have God. (laughs) How could we be discontent? We have him. He is enough. There is great gain in godliness with contentment, Paul writes. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. You never see a, a hearse towing a U-Haul. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen, right? We come in naked and we go out with nothing. That is the way that God ordains it, and it's good that we remember this. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Listen to the warning here in a materialistic culture. These are the things that plunge people into ruin, senseless, harmful desires. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What is the warning here that Paul gives? The warning is you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot do it. You will be devoted to one and hate the other, or you will love one and and be devoted to that one and hate the other. it's, It's exclusive. Money makes a terrible God, and it will destroy you. For the Christian, there is one treasure. It is Christ. He is the gold. He is the silver. He is the wealth. He is the treasure. That is a radically different approach to living in America. It doesn't mean that possessions are evil. It doesn't mean that money is evil. It means that setting your heart on those things, putting your hope in those things, giving your worship to the things that the money can buy, it'll destroy you eternally. It'll run you to the fires of hell. It's weird that discontentment can seem so small to us, but oh, the pit of hell that it can open if we don't catch it. Call it what it is. Now, for the true believer, by the grace of God, they will hear a warning like this and they will catch it through His Spirit's work to convict and turn and reveal, oh Lord, this is an idol. It has to go. That is what Christians do. So, number one, who am I? Number two, where is my heart? Number three, why do I exist? Oh, how easy it's, it is to just fall into this kingdom-building 
instinct. Like, just, well, everybody around me is just like, we, we work our way up the ladder. We get, get more, we get more, we get bigger, we do this, that. Just kingdom, now. Or you read a Joel Osteen book, right? Hey, I have got to live my best life now, right? That's what Joel said. Why do I exist in this place, in the chair that you sit at this very moment? Why are you here on this earth, breathing the air that God provides? He causes your heart to beat so that you would glorify Christ. It is the glory of Christ that we are remaining on this earth. Every day we draw is not for our glory. It's not to build a little kingdom that's going to sink and fade and ultimately burn in the fire of judgment. It is for the glory of Christ that we live. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. What a good cry that is. Oh, Lord, today, here comes a day, and I want to take it for all it's worth for your glory. Every conversation, every opportunity, every heart longing and motive, Lord, make it go to you, not terminate here. Whether you eat or drink, Paul says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's even talking about how we wake up and drink orange juice in the morning. Think in, in very specific ways. My life today, Lord, exists for your glory. I want to delight in you. When I taste that food at breakfast time, I want to say, yes, that's good orange juice. I praise you, God, for that taste. Right? Think of that. That's what Paul's saying. If you eat, if you drink. Mm. In 2 Corinthians, he's talking about the beauty of the gospel. And he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. That is fragile containers, right? Oh, how fragile we are. Why is it that we hold this treasure in jars of clay? That, why is it that Christians are weak and suffer and, and deal with persecution and go through the challenges of life? Why wouldn't God just simply make the, the life of the Christian the most amazing, awesome easy life ever like the prosperity preachers want you to believe why why doesn't he do that because he wants to show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not us one of the ways he shows himself strong is when we are weak and we cry out to him help me lord i got nothing you have everything we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We, we might be persecuted, but we are not forsaken, struck down even. You could take my life. You can't touch me. We are not destroyed. We always carry in the body, uh, in the, body the death of Jesus. That is, his persecutions, right? You think, remember when when. when Christ came to Paul on the road. Paul, or Saul, he cried out, why do you persecute me, Jesus said. Not my people. He said me. So when we are persecuted, when we suffer for the sake of the name, it is the suffering of Christ that we share in. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
How did he suffer? He looked to the Father. How did he go through the trials of his life? It is written. It is written. It is written. He suffered perfectly. He even prayed for his murderers, those that murdered him and mocked him. He prayed. What an example we have in Jesus. So, who am I? Where is my heart? Why do I exist? Question number four, what is my calling? What is my calling? What's the mission of my life? What am I to do as I wake up today? Well, this points us to this. Trust and obey Christ. Trust and obey Christ. That's the, that's the mission statement of every Christian's life. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Every single point along the way in the day, that is the call. Jesus has given us a commission, and it is great. He said, go, therefore, you believers, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our mission. This is, this is what we exist here to do. As we glorify Christ, we have, a, we have a path to walk. We have a race to run, and we do so together, arm in arm. The local church is, is, is the function of the fulfillment of this mission to the ends of the earth. Praise God that we have an opportunity to bring the Old Testament to the Marma people, to that language group. What it's an amazing blessing that is. That's part of it. It also includes the neighbors across the street from you. It's not just global. It's not just Kathleen over there. It's today as we disperse. That's mission field, friends. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. I have a, I have a, I have a reason to leverage the days of my life. There's a purpose, a goal, a mission. We could make business cards. And everyone here could have a business card. Maybe we should have done this. This would have been cool. Good Shepherd Bible Church, right? And primary occupation, share Jesus. That's your main job. Shine the light of Christ. Point the way to Jesus. Treasure Him and show Him as the valuable, the Savior, the hope. Whatever you do for work, that's your... Second job. That's your side job, as it were. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus says, where moth and rust destroy and, and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which is an amazing statement. It means that you can today lay up, store up, stack up reward in heaven that you will meet with someday and these rewards do not rust. And there are no thieves that can endanger those rewards. You don't have to put a fence around it. You don't have to be afraid that someone will take it. And when you die, you don't have to leave it behind. It goes with you. This is purposeful, missional, intentional living. And then he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Are you treasuring the kingdom? One of the ways we can find discontentment is when we hear grumbling as it relates to the things that are temporary. 
okay? Sometimes it means that we are failing to trust. Sometimes it means that we are not truly believing things are the way they really are. What matters most? What lasts in this life? Live for the things that last and lay up eternal rewards. The point is this, Paul says to the, second, uh, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that goes to all kinds of different things. That's not just the offering box, right? That's the way that you serve. And our worship team gets up early on Sunday mornings. They come in here. It's, it's especially in the wintertime. It's dark. It's cold. And they're coming in here. The Lord loves a cheerful servant on the worship team. What a good reminder that is. God loves a cheerful giver. Okay? We don't track your giving here. I never know what anyone's giving. I told the elders that when I arrived at this church. I don't ever want to know what anyone gives. It's, it's, it's none of my business. It's between you and the Lord. There's two people that are aware of your giving, our, our, our bookkeeper and our treasurer. And that's for the purposes of getting you the, the, the giving statements at the end of the year. Here's what he's saying here. This is not formulaic, right? This is not sow that seed so you can be super rich. And none of that. Throw that all out. He's saying treasure Christ and leverage what he gives for his glory and his kingdom. Don't, don't be a grumpy giver. Don't be a grumpy server. Serve with joy out of the overflow of the treasure that you have in him. Missional contentment leads to joyful generosity. It releases it. It, it releases us to like in, incredible demonstrations of love and sacrifice and, and generosity and help. How do we get there? We have a goal for this life. The goal is not just build bigger barns and store up more wealth. The goal is leverage what he gives to to meet the blessings to the ends of the earth, to carry those blessings, meet the needs. I like how John Piper talks. He, he says he likes to live with a wartime ethic. Like in World War II, when everything was short in short supply, people had to make decisions about what they would uh, purchase and, and what they really needed and how they would assess the, the purchasing and the, and the planning and, and things. It's a wartime ethic. We are, in a sense, at war. This is a war, and, and, and we are called to make purposeful decisions about things and, and, and time and, and resources to leverage all that we can to the end of gospel expansion. Missional commitment releases joyful generosity. Question number five, where do I turn? Oh, this is convicting. Sometimes when life is hard and things are heavy, we begin to grumble. We begin to grumble because we can't change it. We're powerless to change the situation. This is when we come to the end of ourselves. What will we do? Friends, 
we need to be reminded that God will often test us in this way for our good. Sometimes a test from the Lord of a trial will meet us in such a way that He kind of pulls the curtain back for us to see there's growth that's needed. I, I, I don't treasure Him as I thought. He, he pulls it back and He shows us that instinct, that impulse, that was not honoring to God. That was a gongizmos moment. Where do I turn? This is depend upon Christ. Depend upon Christ. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. What an amazing statement that is. Paul is saying, listen, I've got this thorn in the flesh, Lord. It's really troubling me. It's, it's, it's interrupting my ministry. If you could just take it away, I would be free to minister in such a greater capacity. And, and whatever that thorn in the flesh was, he pleaded three times. And God said, no, I'm going to leave it because I want to show you about my grace, how it can sustain you in your weakness, how it can meet you when you aren't strong. Look at my strength. That's kind of amazing for God to say. And so Paul says, in conclusion, I will boast, therefore, all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What is he not saying? He's not saying, well, man, I'm just a pure old American, you know, hardworking guy. I got in and I pulled my own bootstraps up. I made it happen, right? Or the guy who has the tattoo on his, on his knuckles, self-made, right? I did this, Nebuchadnezzar said before God turned him into a veritable cow. What are you going to boast about, Christian, in this life? Boast that he is strong. He holds me when I am weak. He is my rock. I would fall apart if it wasn't for him. He's my boast. Oh, we need more, more boasting from Christians in Christ. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Look at the list. <laughs> I can't wait to hang out with Paul. I, I, what? This guy, tenacious faith. Oh, that we would have faith like this. I am content, then, with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. These are amazing verses, friends. They turn upside down the expectations of the world. The Christian life is not free from suffering. We know this, but let's just say it. It is not free from suffering, and it's not because God is powerless to prevent it. He employs it to refine us, to reveal His glory and His strength, and to keep us laser-focused on what matters in this life and the next. Only God can work in this way, in goodness to us. And so we cry with the psalmist, O oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts, my flesh faints for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
Listen to how he moves. Listen to where he starts and look at where he goes. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. I run to you. And behold your power and glory. You see what he's saying? He's saying the same thing Paul's saying. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Let me just say that again. Don't miss that. You may have heard this statement before. This is mind-blowing. Because your steadfast love is better than life. That's mind-blowing. That's a treasure of the love of God. I love your love more than I love my life. (laughs) That's amazing to say. Because it's true, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. Come what may, here's the resolve. My job, my desire, my goal is to bless you. In your name I will lift up my hands and I will depend upon you. Listen to now. He says, my flesh faints earlier. Now he says, my soul, however, will be satisfied. As if I'm eating the biggest, fattest Texas steak you could ever imagine. As with fat and rich food, my soul is feasting on you even when my flesh is falling apart. Only a Christian can say stuff like that. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Think of the treasure that God is. When we come to Him in that way, weak and needy, depending, crying out to Him. Number six, here's your, here's your thumb over here, okay? Oh, how easy it is to forget this last thumb. But we can't finish the sermon without the final thumb. What is my future? Remind yourself, Christian, of this every day. We must live with this question on our minds when we wake up and when we go to bed. And every moment in between. What is my future? This is eternity with Christ. Eternity with Christ. That's that's our future. We get God. He is the treasure today, and we get him in full forever. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter writes, according to his great mercy, he has caused us. Oh, I can't wait to exposit those verses in a few weeks. We're going to jump into 1 Peter soon. He has caused us. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then he adds this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. That's what's coming your way, Christian. You are about to inherit the earth. All things are yours in Christ. You you are children of God, and He's decided not only to His Son to give an inheritance, but that we would share in His inheritance. That's mind-blowing. The greatest inheritance we could ever receive is Christ. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth. If I compare these things, nothing holds a candle to it. There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, and we can add, will fail. They will. We're all fading to glory, all of us. 
but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion. I love that word, my portion, my allotment. Like the land assigned to the Israelites in the promised land when they went in to take the land. What do we get? What is our portion, Christians? God. We get God. He is our portion. You are my portion forever. And so the prayer of Paul in Colossians 1, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Think of that prayer and how it works itself out in our days. Come what may, all the challenges, all the struggles, all the moments we're tempted to go gizmos. Remember, this endurance, this, this patience is, is brought through his strength And so we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's coming your way. That's what we get. All of grace. We don't deserve this, but it's coming. It's ours. So our response this morning. Six questions for the discontented heart. Oh, when you're tempted to go down that road, when all of a sudden you think you're fine and then all of a sudden you catch yourself with just a little murmur. Just, just stop. Stop and rehearse the questions. Remind yourself of what is true, Christian. Walk through, who am I? Where is my heart? Why do I exist? What is my calling in this life? Where do I turn for help? And what is coming my way? What is my future? This is simply a build-out on the statement of Paul in Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Let's pray. Oh God, may we be a people so absolutely obsessed with the value, the treasure, the great worth of you and your Son, your Spirit who resides in us. May we be a people so transfixed on that reality that we would find a place like Paul found to say, there is a secret to contentment and it is you. We can do all things, O Lord, As we look to you to strengthen us, when we are weak, you show yourself glorious and strong. Oh, equip us with these things, O Lord. Help us to regularly stop and do this work. Remind ourselves of what is true. Ask the questions. Work our way through. Remember and rejoice. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. He is the greatest treasure, the treasure above all. Forgive us for how often we forget, how quick our eyes shift and our hearts wander to worthless, wimpy, fading and fleeting things. Lord, fix our gaze upon you. Jesus, we we want to run this race with our eyes locked on you. To live as Christ and to die as gain. In Jesus' name, amen.